Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. I just wish there was another way. I think there is another way. I just don't know that we have the consciousness to choose it. I mean, that's part of why not to always pivot to 2020, which I find myself doing quite a bit lately. But part of what I'm really looking for in the next president is someone who can create a little bit more consciousness about stuff like this, mm-hmm. because we absolutely could start addressing things without hating one another and suffering the consequences of it in the, in the process. Yeah. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. Before we get started... I have an exciting announcement. The Amazon Kindle summer reading sale includes, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. It's featured in the sale. So now through the end of the week, our ebook will be promotionally priced at just $1.99. 
So go download your copy today, y'all. We also are continuing to be so thankful for everyone's support on Patreon. You're going to hear from Tracy, one of our executive producers, at the end of the show today. And we want to let you know that we are going to be speaking at two exciting conferences this fall, Blistem and Evolving Faith. We'll have more information about both of those as we get closer to time. But for now, links will be in the show notes for you to get your tickets. We'd love to meet you at both of these places. We're really excited to be on the agenda, and we're putting together some fun things to share with you. So last week... We all spent a lot of time feeling very stressed about these proposed tariffs on Mexico. Republican senators were mad. The business community was also upset because President Trump was proposing a 5% tariff that would rise every month to a max of 25% until Mexico could, quote unquote, get this immigration crisis under control. Well, They got a deal together, Beth. Did you hear? I did hear. I did hear. Did you also hear that the deal has been in place for months and this all seemed to be a charade? I can't decide if it matters or if I should just sit here and be happy that we're not going to have these tariffs. You know, I know that everybody's tired of the president getting credit for taking us to the brink in Mm -hmm. a totally self-inflicted way and then pulling us back and then saying, aren't I the best? But, man, I'm just I'm exhausted with the conversation about that all around. And I'm just glad that we're not going to do something as really ineffective, I think, as imposing a tariff and harmful as imposing a tariff. When we're trying to get a deal done with Mexico, one of our most important partners in terms of trade and national security and immigration and everything else. Well, and there's two things that I have been thinking about with relation to this. One is if I'm a Republican senator Am I mad because I feel a little bit jerked around or am I happy, especially if I'm like, say, John Cornyn, that I got a chance to say, look, I stood up to him on this whole tariff deal and it didn't happen? I don't know. I think it's so funny that when we analyze these things, you hear a lot of commentary that, well, this gives the president a win with his base. He doesn't need a win with his base. Right. Who cares about this? So I think you're right that the only people who stand to gain or lose anything are the John Cornyns of the world who are trying to make decisions about whether they go along or not. And maybe that matters in the fundraising world. I'm just not sure how much this hits. Without the tariff going into place, I'm not sure how important this is going to be to voters. Well, and the other thing I think a lot about is... Every stunt like this really soaks up time, energy, and muddies the water on something that is a crisis. It is a crisis. The New York Times editorial board put out a thing Mm -hmm. calling on Congress to really pay attention and fund the HHS so that they can put more resources towards the incredible influx of migrants coming over our border. I mean, people are dying. Migrants are dying in our care. And... There was another story that doctors are protesting how migrants are treated in hospital. They're being treated like felons. They're locked to their beds. They're having border officials witness really intimate proceedings, medical procedures. Like, this is really bad. It is a problem. I read a quote where a woman said, you don't enforce your way out of a migrant crisis. And so because we spend all our time on enforcement and trying to scare people away or force them into other areas, like forcing them back into Mexico to await their asylum proceedings, which was a big component of this deal. 
the real problem, which is the way that this influx of migrants are being treated once they they pass our border and just dealing with that influx to begin with is not getting the attention it deserves. That's really where my brain has been. What would I do if I were the president? Because something has to happen here. And let's even assume that I didn't create all of the ugliness around this that this president has. I'm just a normal president, and we've got a lot of people coming into the country. Sounds so good when you say it. Just a normal president. Just a normal, I'm just your average president, and I still have a crisis, right? Because you and I have expressed a ton of compassion and feel a ton of compassion for people who are leaving the Northern Triangle to come to the United States. Mm -hmm. Even so... A large flow of people into the country has to be dealt with in some kind of meaningful way. There are human trafficking risks. There are crime risks. There are public health risks. There are all kinds of issues that need to be managed. And so I was thinking about what I would want to do is first get together with all of the state governors to talk about where we really could settle people meaningfully and in ways that enhance our economies, that provide good social support so that folks come into Mm -hmm. the country and are integrated happily and well, places where they will still have opportunities to practice important elements of their faith and cultures. Just get together a plan for where do we want people to go and how are we going to get them there. And then I feel like instead of trying to manage our border, could we not work more with Canada and Mexico and any other countries that would like to help be part of the solution here to take what would traditionally look like border control to the Northern Triangle. Instead of people coming out of that country in whatever conditions are available to them, getting to Mexico, getting to the United States, would we not have a better chance at keeping people healthy, keeping families together, keeping people safe, if we worked with the governments in the Northern Triangle to like come there and do some kind of processing where okay, this group of people will go to the United States, this group will go to Canada, this group will go to Mexico, and within those countries, here's the plan from there. I just feel like we need a a completely different approach here instead of constantly talking about what we're doing at the border because it's not working. I don't think anybody would think this is a good situation. The other major development over the weekend was all the way across the globe in Hong Kong, So before we dive in, Beth, you're going to do the nightly nuance tonight on Hong Kong and the fact that it is an independent territory within China, right? I am. I'm going to talk about the geography because, you know, I love that. And just the system of government, because Hong Kong is a really unique place in the world. It has a really unique economy. And I think fully understanding the protests that took place in Hong Kong over the weekend requires a pretty deep dive on what Hong Kong is all about. So I'm going to do that. But we should tell you today that over a million people turned out to protest a law that you would think would not get that kind of attention. This legislation would allow Hong Kong to extradite people to other countries to face charges there. It was spurred by a crime committed in Taiwan. And the Hong Kong government is saying, look, we don't want to be a place that's just refuge for a bunch of criminals. And the citizens of Hong Kong are saying, whoa there, everybody. We're real close to China. And I don't know if you've heard, but China is not the best about civil liberties. (laughs) And we don't want people to start disappearing and going into a country that has a process that we have no confidence in. And this is a very big deal. And I think it's going to bring to a head 
all kinds of issues surrounding the way the Chinese government is treating the Chinese people right now. Yeah, I think anytime you see a protest of that level, it was really interesting to hear the reporting. People had their kids out. I mean, and listen, you gather a million people in the streets like that, you're looking at an all-day affair with little kids. So as a mother of little kids, I know that the time commitment you're willing to commit to turn out means that it's not just about a simple extradition change, that people are taking this much more seriously. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement as a result of the protest. And the reporting I was listening to said that people are like, fine, we're going to plan our next protest. So I don't think this story is going anywhere. Part of the demand is that the person at the top of Hong Kong's government resign. So you can tell that there's a sense that she is an instrument of Beijing, and that's not what the people of Hong Kong want. So I do think that we are at the beginning of a process and far from the end of it. There was a great headline about how the protest culture in Hong Kong was on life support, but Hong Kong's government has single-handedly revived it by their relationship with the Chinese government. Beth, who are you complimenting from the other side this week? I want to compliment Senator Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada. She and a number of other legislators on a bipartisan basis are working on the very high rates of violence against Native women in our country. Native women not only are more susceptible to being taken, being murdered, but they are also more susceptible to that happening and no one investigating it or being brought to justice or knowing about it because we don't have good data. We don't have good coordination between tribal and federal authorities. 97% of Native women who have experienced violence are victimized by non-Native perpetrators. So this isn't an issue within the Native community. It is an issue of us treating Native people with less dignity than other fellow citizens. So there is a bipartisan effort that Senator Cortez Masto has introduced called Savannah's Act. It was initially introduced by Heidi Heidkamp and Lisa Murkowski, and it had bipartisan support when those two senators introduced it. But Bob Goodlatte in the House um, kept it from getting out of committee because he didn't like the way some of federal funds were going to be spent under the law. But now there's Democratic House. And so there's more momentum here. So Cortez Masto and Murkowski are sponsors. They also have co-sponsors from both North Dakota senators, from Tom Tillis of North Carolina, from Senator Canwell of Washington, both of New Mexico senators, John Tester from Montana, Chris Coons of Delaware, and Jeff Merkley of Oregon. And I want to name all of those people because I think this work is really important and will not get the coverage that it deserves. Savannah's Act is named for Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, a young pregnant woman who was abducted and killed in Fargo in 2017, and it would increase the coordination between federal and tribal agencies, improve tribal access to law enforcement databases, and require the Attorney General and the Secretary of the Interior to consult with tribes on developing databases. And I don't have a lot of kind words for the Attorney General, but the Attorney General from the reports that I've read, has been pretty engaged on this issue and has said that it is important to him to meaningfully improve the way the Department of Justice handles violence against Native women. So hooray for that. 
They're also working on the Not Invisible Act to create an advisory committee of law enforcement, tribal leaders, survivors, and family members of victims to make further recommendations to DOJ and the Department of the Interior. So I am going to compliment GOP efforts in many state legislators across the country to overturn the death penalty. The Atlantic has a really good article that I will put in the show notes called GOP Lawmakers Are Quietly Turning Against the Death Penalty. So New Hampshire last week became the latest state to overturn the death penalty. And the article profiles David Welch, who is a New Hampshire State House representative. And I thought this was just a really beautiful reflection on sort of how his thinking changed. And as someone who's read and talked about the death penalty for a very, very long time. This is the first time I've heard someone articulate this, and I thought it was really good. He said, after his wife's death, he came to understand that when the state executes someone, it puts another family through the intense period of mourning he went through. There is no reason for it, he told me. They're innocent. And so New Hampshire is the 21st state to outlaw capital punishment, and 11 states, including GOP strongholds like Kansas, Wyoming, our own state of Kentucky, and Missouri, have Republican lawmakers sponsoring bills to end the practice. So if you live in one of those states, reach out to your Republican representatives and tell them that you support these efforts. Next up, we are going to continue our conversation about Brexit and discuss why we think it's relevant to those of us in the United States. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked to me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Pantsuit. 
The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. So, Beth, I've had a lot of people reach out to me in my personal life, like in person, (laughs) about our Brexit five things you need to know, which is always a good sign that people were really thinking. I do think a lot of it is a little shouting for it on the behalf of us as Americans. They're like, we are not the only hot mess. How did it do you? Did you feel a little bit of that? Is that what you're hearing from people, that they're happy that someone else is experiencing difficulty? (laughs) Yep. Yep. That's it. I think that really sums it up well, honestly. That's interesting. I think there are so many things for us to learn from Brexit and from the way that partisanship erodes meaningful, realistic political expectations. That, to me, is the story of Brexit. You had people making this really emotional appeal and saying to the populace, let's get excited about our identity And let's just forget for a second everything our partnership with others affords us. And we're going to vote on our identity, and then we'll sort out how those partnerships work later. And I think we're dangerously close to doing that in so many aspects of American politics. And I feel like it is so much about the attribution error, right? That when somebody else messes up, it's because they're terrible, But if I mess up, it's because of, you know, environment or things without my control. I feel like that's what I feel when I look at Brexit, like that emotionalness of, well, whatever problems we have are your fault. It's not anything to do with something that could be attributed to our own issues. Like when Corey, our expert that we interviewed, said that the border with Northern Ireland did not come up during the Brexit election, I was floored. Just floored. I was really surprised to hear that, but then not at all either, because you can't make a great campaign slogan about the border with Northern Ireland. I mean, can't, is that true? I mean, the one border and y'all don't have a plan for it? I don't know. I could think of some commercials. It's so jacked up. How do you, what are you telling people to do? What are you asking people to get excited about when they vote on a simple one-question referendum in relation to the, the border with Northern Ireland? I'm saying, do you want to go back to the troubles? We have an open border. There is no solution to leaving the European Union that doesn't institute a hard border that will be a call for more violent acts. 
I mean, I don't know, like, geez. I mean, I know we can't Monday morning quarterback and go back, but I just, the more I think about the Northern Ireland thing and the more, I mean, again, it's the attribution thing, right? I just see the problems for me with borders. I don't see how borders, and particularly open borders, can serve me. Well, and I also think, you know, it's what happens with so many political issues here, which is because we can't, because there's such hyper-partisanship, and be because we can't for one millisecond say the other side has a point, then the narrative shifts even more. And so we couldn't say, you know what, you're right. There are some issues with our membership in the European Union, and there are some structural things that leave us underrepresented or leave us without the ability to prioritize what's important to us. Because I can't say that and we can't talk about it in a nuanced way and we have to go in these black and white camps then it becomes that's what pushes us to this sort of emotional place where we do have to just depend on emotional emotional stories instead of allowing the nuance that both sides have a point. I agree with that. And I think that what calls me so much about the Brexit situation as an American citizen is the conversation. I think conversation is a generous way to say this, but the conversation we're having about the role of states in this country, because I completely have sympathy for the idea that I'm an English citizen and I've watched some of the most central decisions to my part of the world be made farther and farther away from me. And the way the EU is set up, it really is just a small piece of it that is directly representative of citizens. So I get the sense that I've lost a lot of power and control and decision-making here, and I don't like that. Maybe it's not responsive to my needs, and the government that's supposed to be responsive to my needs is so busy constantly attending these summits to talk with the rest of Europe. Like, where where is the body that serves me? I completely understand that. I think we have that problem in the United States at the state level, too. And I think we're doing at the state level in the United States a lot of what the UK Independence Party, the Nigel Farages, have exploited in Britain, which is saying, blame it all on Washington, D.C., right? That's our version of blame it all on Brussels. And so I think we've got to figure out in both circumstances, how can we do a better job valuing what these connections, what being part of a larger body affords us? It's a lot. States that talk about succession, I occasionally just Google this because that is the kind of nerd that I am. If you are thinking about succession, think about the amount of federal dollars that flow into your state. The idea of citizens who live on a border having to cross into another country every time they leave the state. There are so many things that we are afforded by being part of this whole. How do we find the right balance of feeling represented in our institutions while still appreciating those institutions? Working on it is so much harder than this up or down vote. Do we like it or not? So borders are at the center of so much of this. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we're at this moment where we're really struggling with what you what you just described, sort of what does it mean to cross a border? What does it mean to change the relationship at the border? Is a result of the ease of travel. I keep thinking about that Atlantic article, like we travel too much um, and the impact on cultures and just 
not just environmentally, but just our perception. I mean, how much of what's happening here is people don't understand the water we swim in, the water of what it was like before the ease of air travel, what it was like before we had access to the information of so much of what was going on around the world. I mean, so many of these of our sort of global order was set up post-World War II when, like, reading about D-Day, how they didn't, they literally didn't know what was happening at, from at D-Day until, like, two days later because the flow of information wasn't obviously what we're used to in the Internet age or air travel was not accessible. And I don't know if that's if that's made us less appreciative because we just, it's the water we swim in and we don't understand um, how much we depend on the open flow of information on open borders and travel and um, the global economy, or if it's because we're reacting to that. We are aware of it, and we're reacting to that in a way. You know what I mean? I think I do, and I think it's a really important question, especially as we come to understand, as you said, a lot of the borders in the world have been drawn after wars, and they've Mm -hmm. often been drawn by people who have lots of power, not by people who actually live in places. Right. And so when Corey was talking about the Northern Ireland border not being a very logical one, I thought, well, that describes like the entirety of the Middle East. It certainly describes the border um, between North and South Korea. I mean, that is the history of borders in the world, right? They have been drawn in ways that did not comport at the time with the way human beings were living and certainly do not comport with the way human beings are living today. And I don't know what that means. I think that's happening at the same time as we are searching in this really hungry way for identity descriptors that don't draw on race, ethnicity, and religion, right? And so Mm -hmm. you spend... 30 seconds on Etsy, you can see that state pride is alive and well in the United States. And all of that depends on a border. And we find and we find that with the political parties, too. You know, we have these weird ways of working out who we are. So I really, again, have sympathy for the UK because I get why people heard this question and thought, you know what? I'm proud to be British. Let's do this. Let's go it alone for a while. I I really understand why people came to that conclusion. And I just, I don't know how we have a conversation. That's the same conclusion that America came to when we elected Donald Trump in some ways, right? That there's a portion of America, we can argue about the numbers on whether it's 50-50 or something less than that, but there's a portion of America that thinks The rest of the world screwed us over in a lot of ways, whether the data backs that up or not. And I think it doesn't. But that's how people feel. And so let's go this alone for a while. I don't know what to do with that when we're not really getting at what you said, which is a border means something so different today than it did in the 1950s. In many ways, Brexit is functioning as an education as an invitation to think about this. Like you say, like, this is a divorce deal and it's going badly. So what would a divorce deal really mean for California or Florida or a a nation in Africa or, you know, Guatemala? I mean, all these different places in the world 
where the borders don't make sense or where there's a lot of conflict or where there are lines drawn around ethnic groups. Like the problem is maybe we are living in a time where borders have a new meaning, but when we try to split them up, the impossibility of doing that in this new age where everything is so interconnected becomes rapidly apparent. So, Sarah, what do you think is coming in the UK? And do you think whatever ultimately happens will guide us through the next iteration of this conversation? Oof. I think a soft Brexit is increasingly unlikely. I don't see a solution that is agreeable to both sides with regards to Northern Ireland and the backstop. I just, I can't, unless somebody comes up with technology now that will make customs available without a checkpoint, I I don't understand how they will come to a solution on that. And I'm honestly, I think they might invent another problem. You know, I think the side that doesn't want, that just wants a hard exit will find something else to be disagreeable about, truthfully. And so... I think a soft Brexit is highly unlikely. I think the most likely scenario is a hard Brexit where they just leave with no transition period. Or as that becomes increasingly likely, there is another referendum. But I think the most likely scenario at this point is a hard Brexit. What do you Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code podcast15. We 
do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. What do you think? I think that's the most likely scenario as well, and I think that it will probably ultimately be fine because I do think the British have enough good working relationships around the world to in time after what I think will originally be pretty painful, but in time work out. Okay. I don't think this will be the worst thing that's ever happened to the UK. I'm really interested in what it means for the EU and how the EU chooses to navigate this because the sharing particularly of security information Mm -hmm. to me is the most critical factor that is in jeopardy in a hard Brexit. And I just don't think anybody can afford to lose that kind of collaboration, especially with what we know about Russia and China and their activities in the world right now. See, I think that it just depends on what you need mean by it will be okay. I mean, do I think the country will implode? No. Do I think that they will be operating at a deficit for decades with regards to education, with regards to their economy, with regards to um, a lot of structural things that they've just been depending on? Yeah, I do. I think that, I mean, because it's, you know, even in a in, even in a global age where we have all this technology, you know, I think I learned this as a city commissioner, especially with regards to government, there is a finite amount of time and attention. And so what is lost, what has already been lost with regards to upgrading their health system, upgrading their infrastructure, dealing with um, challenges with regards to artificial intelligence and social media? I mean, I mean, what's already been lost with the time and attention and money spent on Brexit and what will continue to be lost if they hard exit and have to figure out this new way of doing things. I mean, you only have so much processing capacity as a country, as a government. And so if you're spending all of that on this, what is lost in the meantime? I think that's right. A question that I have is whether... Given that we're always in a situation where there's a finite amount of time and resources, and also given that everything you do has consequences and externalities and some that are going to be positive and some that are going to be negative, is it ultimately worth it or worth it in, on by some metric to give 
this much attention to the question of national identity. Because I feel like in some ways the reason that all these identity issues are thriving right now is because we've always said, no, 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 that's at the bottom of the priority list. And so it keeps getting more toxic and surfacing in more aggressive ways. And there's a part of me that thinks, look, if the people of the United Kingdom need to work this stuff out, maybe they just need to work this stuff out and they prioritize that over having cheaper cars and groceries. I don't know. It's a tough choice. I don't think this is the best way to work that out, though. I think that instead of working it out together, it's just forced them farther apart. Yeah. And I mean, often, though, the only way we do work things out is if there's enough pain. Right. And I think we're seeing that in the United States to some extent, too. We're we're creating a situation that is increasingly painful when it doesn't have to be. If you look Mm -hmm. at the United States objectively and our place in history, this would be a great time to, in really positive ways, confront the challenges in front of us. But we're not choosing that. And so what is happening instead is that we are pushing ourselves into increasingly negative spaces. And I do think that the pain caused by pushing ourselves into increasingly negative spaces is going to force us to contend with some of these issues. And maybe that's what Brexit is, a boiling over of something that hadn't been addressed. I think that Scotland probably needs another referendum, right? Because until Mm. you sort these things out in whatever way they're going to be sorted by contemporaries living in modern society, they're just going to keep festering. Ugh, it's just so awful. (laughs) I just wish there was another way. I think there is another way. I just don't know that we have the consciousness to choose it. I mean, that's part of why not to always pivot to 2020, which I find myself doing quite a bit lately. But part of what I'm really looking for in the next president is someone who can create a little bit more consciousness about stuff like this, because Mm -hmm. we absolutely could start addressing things without hating one another and suffering the consequences of it in the, in the process. Yeah. I just wonder sometimes, you know, we talked about Chernobyl on IGTV this week. And I think a lot about Russians and so much of the reporting I've read that they're happy sacrificing a certain amount of freedom I'm painting with a broad brush here, if the economy is well. You know, there's so much reporting that they like Putin because Putin turned things around. And so they're going to defend Putin. Or I think about what I read about with the protest in Hong Kong and in the, re, in the renegotiations with China. And I think about the Chinese people and, the you know, you hear reports from them that say, especially with the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square, look, when the economy is going well and we feel like the basic needs are being met. We're not looking for much more beyond that. And so, you know, as much as I love the idea of a more conscious discussion, there's a part of me that just wonders, is that what people want? Do people want a more highly evolved conversation? Or is there a part of us that is not ready for that? Or for basic psychological and evolutionary reasons, um, are more comfortable in that sort of emotional story. Um, and that is so easily manipulated by fear and by 
priorities. I, I don't know. I just I get in this very sort of cynical space where I think, yeah, I love the sound of that, but I'm just not sure everybody's up for it. Yeah, because we've lived most of our history as a species in that safety and security rung of the hierarchy of needs. And I think that the first act of consciousness that would do us a world of good is recognizing that we are out of that rung now. We act like we aren't. Mm -hmm. We act like safety and security is still uh, that we're still constantly under safety and security threat because we've gone from is the lion going to eat me to is my 401k going to allow me to retire comfortably at 67, right? And because the answer for almost all of us now is no, we are not going to be retiring at 67, we believe that we are stuck in the safety and security rung of the hierarchy of needs. And some of us are. There are parts of society that absolutely still live in a state of threat from a variety of factors, but the human species as a whole, we've innovated our way out of, is the lion going to eat me? And I think until we have that conversation and recognize we're wired to be avoiding threats. And so how can we stop perceiving threats where they aren't really the kind of threat that we're wired to deal with so that we can start collaborating on the threats that we're really not wired to understand, but that are coming at us? Does that make sense? Yeah, we took a we took a winding road away from Brexit. <laughs> but isn't that what it's about ultimately? Like the emotional argument that compelled people to vote to leave is an argument about safety and security, I think. About whether my identity is being respected in the world. Do I still have control over my own destiny? And I get why people voted for that, right? Whatever whatever that looks like, I want it. I want control over my own destiny. I want my identity to mean something. Okay, how do we achieve that for you in a world where the best way that we can meet your actual safety and security needs are by collaborating with people who are different than you? Mm -hmm. Beth, what is on your mind outside politics? Okay, so I posted on Patreon a couple of weeks ago some audio from time I spent in my hometown library. I was in Western Kentucky to speak at an HR conference. And while I was there, I went to the library in Livermore, Kentucky, where I grew up. Population about 1,500. I always tell people two banks, one grocery store, zero stoplights. That's Livermore. <laughs> and at the last minute while I was there, I pulled out my phone and just hit record on the voice memo app so that I could share this discussion with our patrons. And so in it, you hear me talking with a really small group of people about our book. And I have gotten several questions since then. And the the tender way in which people are asking tells me that lots more people have this question and are afraid that it's rude. So I thought we should talk about it. People keep asking me, why do I have less of an accent than the people in my hometown and specifically my parents that they heard on the recording? And I think that is an interesting point of data, especially because you and I, Sarah, from the beginning of Fancy Politics have gotten so many versions of, I was kind of put off by the fact that you're in Kentucky and the way you sound. And then I realized you're actually pretty smart. So I found, um, I found this article about how even more than appearance, we judge each other's intellects by accents. So to answer the question, I think there are two reasons that I have less of an accent 
The first one is that I took voice lessons when I was in high school, so I thought a lot about vowels, and I always sang in choirs, and I just thought a lot about how we're using our mouths physically to make these sounds. The second one, I think, is I probably have internalized some of that attitude and have really worked unconsciously, at least, on flattening out my accent so that I would be taken more seriously in spaces where people don't sound like me. When I am tired, angry, had a couple of drinks, I lose that calibration, and you can hear it pretty clearly where I'm from. But I feel kind of bad about that, that I've lost, that most of the time I've lost the accent of my people and and for reasons that I don't feel great about. So when I lived in Washington, D.C., I experienced a lot of really strong Southern stereotyping often driven by my accent, people would say things to me about being a Southerner, about being Kentucky, that they would never say about someone of a different ethnicity or race. Um, it's just an, an it's acceptable thing to bust on Southerners and to say really awful things based on someone's Southern accent. Still, I still hear it sometimes. Um, I remember vividly someone in D.C. saying to me, like, oh, I think you're losing your accent and thinking, well, I got to move home. I love my accent. I don't ever want to lose my accent. Uh, I sang in choirs, but I never took voice lessons. So and I never consciously or unconsciously wanted to rid myself of my accent, even in the face of hearing a lot of, let me be blunt, bullshit about my Kentucky accent, especially when I would travel to California um, to visit my father during the summers of my childhood, which perhaps is some of my animosity towards California to this day. But I love my accent. I really wish I had a North Carolina, South Carolina accent. That's my favorite Southern accent. I have no desire to get rid of it. I have no desire. In fact, the opposite. I'm very protective of it. Um, I love it when I hear it in my kids, especially, you know, when they're little and they're like stretching out words that are one syllable. It's my favorite um, I think accents are great. I think it's um, – I love to hear a difference. I love to hear – I love what our brains do um, when they hear accents. And not to just beat this Chernobyl horse into the ground, but the podcast about the first episode, he talks about why they chose not to do Russian accents and how actors will sort of act the accent instead of just acting and just the choices they made around accents, which was super fascinating. Yeah, I think that's all great. It's a very real phenomenon. I had someone tell me when I was starting to interview with law firms that I'd probably do pretty well because it's interesting to meet someone with a rural background who doesn't have too much of an accent to be taken seriously in the workplace. Oh, my God. So people are very direct about this kind of thing. And I think especially if you feel like you are going into spaces where you don't belong or spaces where you have a sense of imposter syndrome, it is a pretty powerful force. So I thought it was interesting. But I'm excited to hear what's on your mind outside of politics, which I imagine involves Nicholas's birthday. Happy birthday, Nicholas. Yes, my beloved husband, Nicholas Holland, turned 40 years old this weekend. So he is officially old and I'm officially young. That's the most important takeaway. Um, No, we had a great time. I really wanted to surprise him. With a party because he was turning, he literally turned 40 on Saturday. I mean, what was I supposed to do? I was powerless in the face of that alignment. So here, hot tip for anybody out there trying to surprise their partner. What I did was have hit. He knew I was planning something. And so I had two of his brothers. I didn't have them do it. They lovingly decided to do it. They came from out of town to help us celebrate. So they showed up on Friday. So it was like, here's your surprise. Your brothers are here. And then like got him off my scent 
it threw them off my tracks. You feel me? And so then we went out with them. We went out to dinner. We had a big thing at the Mexican restaurant. And so when we came back and he walked in, as you could see on our Insta stories, he was really surprised. I think we had like 50 people. It's, uh, you know, I just, I love any moment. One, to celebrate this man who I've been with since I was 19 years old, who I adore. And two, when my house is filled with all the people in my life that I love and just seeing them all together and enjoying each other's company and being able to host them, it's just all around a good thing. I also, um, for those of you who did not know and who will most likely not be surprised about this based on my personality, I stinking love birthdays. I love celebrating them. I don't think people should have to work on their birthday. I think you should be able to eat whatever you want all three meals of your birthday and you should get lots of presents. I just I love birthdays so much. And so being able to combine all these things that I love into one weekend. It was stressful, though, because I'm a terrible liar. And, like, having to get all the pieces to the house without him knowing about it was super stressful. And I'm very glad that part's over. But we had a blast. I'm so glad. And we should say Nicholas is very, very important to Pansy Politics. There would not be a Pansy Politics so true. without Nicholas. And so happy birthday from the whole community. Nicholas, I'm so glad, Sarah, that you pulled off your party. Yay. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Friday is going to be a really special episode. You're going to hear from two Senate candidates on Friday, MJ Heger in Texas, running against John Cornyn, who we were talking about a little bit earlier, and Stephanie Rose Spaulding in Colorado, vying for the Democratic nomination for Senate there. It's going to be two great conversations. Stick around after the credits here so that you can hear from Tracy, our executive producer. And until Friday, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.